0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Beverly and I am, I am a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I've been in the Al-Anon program of recovery since February 9th of 1981. And I want you to know that on September, around the 20th of September of 1981, I came to my very first Brazos or um, ah. Lakeside conference. I'm sorry. I'm, this is such an honor. I, you know, I can't even begin to tell you what an honor this is. And when Obi did this last year, (laughs) he he just before I left here last year, he said, would you, would you be our Al-Anon speaker? And I was humbled by the invitation because out of the 19 years that I've been in the program, I've been to this conference 17 years. And um, for you to ask me (laughs) to come up here and share my recovery it tells me I have some. <laughs> it's like y'all have given me a stamp of approval because the people who have stood at this podium over the past 17 years that I've been here have been giants. They have left me um, a legacy. They have raised the the ladder of my recovery, and every time I leave here, I want more. And and so for you to watch me come in this door for 17 years in various stages of recovery and non-recovery and and have me share here. It is just, I mean, it tells me that somewhere along the line this program works um, because I am not who I was when I walked in here in September of 1981. Now I want to tell you that Sarah, are so many people in this room that just have loved me beyond anything I could describe. and starting Friday you know people have come and hugged me and said you're going to do wonderful and you're going to be fine and we love you more than anything and this is going to be such an honor and we can't wait to hear your story I mean it it has just felt the thing that I pray for is that God will open my heart and let me feel love because I can't feel it a lot of times and and slowly over the years I have beginning to believe in myself and in you and know that when you tell me you love me you really mean it. And so I've had all this love just poured on me. And I stopped, and TJ and I shed a few tears as we went down the aisle, and she hugged me and, and, and wished me well. And then I got to Mr. Joe G. And he gave me a big hug and said he loved me. And he says, And Beverly, please don't embarrass us in front of these
1: people. You know,
0: wow. it just went. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to try really hard not to embarrass Joe (laughs) in front of all of his friends. (laughs) You know how we are about that. We're fragile. (laughs) This is a beautiful place to me, and and like all of you, I've walked out of here um, with gifts and and gifts that have kept me alive and well for the rest of the year. And um, I've walked in here burdened with a fifth step. I've walked in here burdened. Um, with with people that I've lost out of my life that I've loved. I've come here years where I've just felt wonderful but my very first year I have to tell you I slept on the top bunk above Miss Evelyn and um, Beverly brought me in there and she says we've got this bunk available and you can sleep up here and and you'll enjoy the people that are in this room and I didn't know anything I didn't even know if I belonged here yet and Miss Evelyn says to me I smoke and I smoke a lot and I don't want to hear one single word from you and it's like, okay, okay, (laughs) okay.
1: (laughs) And I want you all
0: to know I've slept around here. (laughs) I've gone from bed to dorm and the dorm that I slept in for a number of years was right there and it had a back porch and we didn't sleep inside. We slept out on the porch and I came one year prepared to sleep on my porch and the whole darn thing was gone, so I had to find another place to sleep, and, um, you know, it's been wonderful to sleep around here, because, you know, you <laughs> you just never know who you're going to, s- I mean, I've slept above, <laughs> I- I've slept over Miss Evelyn and Bonnie Allen and, and just so many wonderful people, and, you um, And it's just been, don't get stuck in the same old bed, you know, move around. (laughs) We have a lot of freedom here. (laughs) You can make amends later. (laughs) I've got my play clothes on today. I'm not born and raised in in Texas. Um, I actually, I guess you already know that. (laughs) Y'all know that, right? I was born and raised in Chicago a long time ago but when I came to Texas, I was—I had not been born yet, as far as I'm concerned, and when I moved here and got involved in the program of Al-Anon, um, I got to find out that I was really, truly, I've been born in Texas, and so I get to wear Texas play clothes, and um, I had Sue Drum for a house guest a while back, and you just don't get to have Sue Drum for a house guest not end up with a pair of cowboy boots. <laughs> so. I, you know, I come up here and they said have fun, don't take yourself so seriously and I have taken life and myself real serious for a long time and so I really do want to have some fun up here today because I have recovered from a deadly illness myself. Al-Anon, people who are truly members of Al-Anon recover from a seemingly hopeless disease and they don't even drink. The people who live with alcoholics die of the disease of alcoholism without ever having taken a drink and I was at that place when I got here in 1981. I was dead and didn't know it. I had died of the disease of alcoholism. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois a long time ago and I, I, um, I know today that I was raised in an alcoholic family. Um, I believe that my father was the alcoholic and my mother reacted dangerously to his illness. But it wasn't just his illness that started her behavior because my mom was raised in an alcoholic family as well. And the evidence that I have of my mother's past is a little tiny leather purse with the little beads on the top, just a little teeny tiny little leather one, and inside of there are a few coins amounting to probably less than 25 cents, and my grandfather's obituary is in there. And all that's on that little tiny piece of paper is the day he was born, the day he died, (coughs) and his name. And that tells me that alcoholism had taken the life of that man because there wasn't anything that anybody had to say about him in the newspaper. Um, So my mother had been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism long before she had married my father. I believe that my father's life was touched with alcoholism as a child. My father's brother died in a gutter of alcoholism and uh, when I was a little girl we would get calls from 26th Street in Chicago and they'd say, Jimmy's bad drunk. My father would go down there and uh, pick him up and my mother would clean his fingernails in Clorox and cut them and clean him up a little bit and then they would take him to the VA hospital because they felt he was too dirty to take to the VA hospital. And they would put him in there for a little while and they'd, he'd get out and he'd look like a whole new person. I remember it. He looked all brand new and he was a wonderful butcher when he was sober and they would get him a job because when he was sober, anybody on 26th Street was, was happy to have him. And he'd go to work there for a little while and we, it wouldn't be too long until my father would get the call that my his brother was bad drunk and come get him again. And I don't know how many times that happened in my childhood. It happened over and over and over again until I was 16 years old and we were living in the suburbs. And my uncle had gotten on the Burlington Quincy Railroad and rode in from Chicago and found our house, and he staggered up the front steps, and my mother was so embarrassed because we were living in the suburbs now and this drunk had shown up of his own free will on our front doorstep and she said to him, I'll let you stay here but you have to behave yourself. And I don't need to tell you what he did, but it was absolutely despicable and my mother threw him out and told my father that his brother was never welcome in our home again. And I remember all this stuff. I mean, there's so much evidence of how the disease just takes people and just ruins their lives. And so my uh, my. Dad's brother. He took, it, drove him down to the train station, gave him enough money to get on the train and get a couple of packs of cigarettes. And to my knowledge, they never saw him again. And eventually, he died again in a gutter. And it was several weeks until the authorities were able to find his sister and his brother. And that's the way alcoholism took its toll in my family. My brother is currently serving time in the Utah State Prison for alcoholism. This is his fourth one year, um, his fourth one year sentence, and. Um, And it is as clear to me as as I'm standing here that that man does not understand that he is deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism. And I want to tell you, if I remember, I want to tell you a little bit more about the miracle of my relationship with my brother this year. But what I wanted to establish is that alcoholism had been my way of life from the time that I was born and there was a lot of things that happened. You know, I, I, my self-esteem and my dignity, you know, were non-existent almost from the beginning. My mother raged and and when she got incredibly angry at the disease of alcoholism, she would take a what she lovingly called her cat of nine tails and just beat the crap out of me, you know, and then I'd have to go out and, you know, pretend like all those welts on my legs I got climbing trees because, God forbid, anybody should know how you really got hurt. And um, When I was seven years old my sister was born and I was feeling like I was having a hard time getting any attention in that house and so as soon as they brought that baby home and later in a bassinet I got an immediate resentment about my sister and I made her pay for being born until I came into the program of Al-Anon and eventually worked a fourth step and fifth step on my relationship with her and uh, at that time she and her husband were involved in the program and what I had heard through the grapevine is that my sister held me in high esteem. But I got to a place where discomfort overwhelmed me with that relationship, and I knew that there was the only way out was to write this inventory, and I had to take responsibility for my part in that relationship, and eventually it worked out, and um, we have a wonderful relationship today. But um, about, well, she was, that was seven, three years after she was born, my brother was born. You know, I'm, I'm getting older now, and I don't know very much about my sister and brother. My means was to survive. And I believe that children born in alcoholic homes learn survival techniques that, um, you know, we're not taught. We just know when to get out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just know that it's a lot quieter down at the baseball field watching the Little League guys play football and or baseball. And we know it's a lot quieter at the drugstore having a cherry Coke. And, and I learned how to roller skate and ride bicycles, and I was a good athlete, and I spent as much time as I possibly could out of that house. When I was... Um, about fourth in fourth or fifth grade we moved into the suburbs and you know it we took we had that alcoholic dream alcoholic families have dreams and they wanted only the best for their children but we didn't know how to, we didn't know how to accomplish that you know they had this dream we're going to move in the suburbs and everything's going to be happy and we're going to live happily ever after for the rest of our lives but as the moving van drove away from the house in Chicago and pulled up to the house in, in the suburbs we uh, we had packed alcoholism with us and alcoholism is a progressive disease and um, and things it didn't take too long until things really got bad again and it gets worse and worse and worse. And I made a little network of friends and I was, for the most part, I had a happy childhood as long as I stayed out of that house. I mean, I really enjoyed my life. I was raised in a community that was small and safe and we could go out and play and and enjoy and we didn't have to worry about anything ha- bad happening to us. The worst things that happened to me as a kid happened in my very own home. And and so outside was nice. When I was a senior in high school, my father lost his job at a company that he had worked for for years, and a company in uh, Ogden, Utah gave a lot of their engineers an opportunity to come to work for them and so about 30 guys took that took that opportunity and we went to to Utah my father set out a couple of months before my mom she stayed back to sell the house and we were going to take this magnificent train ride across the united states and we were going to start over and life was going to be wonderful and my dad's making more money and she was glad to get out of illinois because she thought that that was the root of the problem you know that if we could just get out of illinois and the crowds and the people and everything and start over in a new place it was going to be better well we hopped off that train and there were no cowboys and indians and and there were mountains and loneliness you know and and i and i had lost this whole network of friends you know this whole you know i don't want to call it a Port career was just my buddies, you know, and people who invited me for dinner, and and you know just took care of me. I didn't know I was being taken care of. They just took care of me, and um, that turned out to be the loneliest year of my life. And at the end of that summer, I turned, um, I finally graduated from high school and um, my father got me a job at the defense plant Marquardt Corporation where he lived and I thought I went in there and interviewed for a job it just occurred to me that whole deal was set up but nonetheless I got a job at this defense plant and I was a little clerk in a in the blueprint island and we had a lot of adding machines and calculators that had the brand name Frieden on them and several of them broke and they called this repair company and in comes this fox and he had um, I have to describe in tune you because I fell and lost immediately um, he had a duck tail and he had a crew cut and he had a jacket on and a tie and a white shirt and he smoked this cocky little cigarette that hung out of the corner of his mouth it's when when you could smoke in buildings and he kind of just walked with that alcoholic arrogance you know just came on down the aisle with his little briefcase and I'm a kid, I'm, I'm 18 years old, just turned 18 years old, and I'm looking at this older man and I'm thinking to myself, oh man, that is, I mean, I just thought he was wonderful, right? Well, thank God one of our calculators were amongst those that were broken. <laughs> and he comes into my department and he's talking to people because he's made lots of friends there. And he had, I gathered from the conversation, he had only been married six months but there was trouble in paradise, and at that very moment, his clothes were hanging from a pole, uh, the, the actually the water pipe in his office, and there was a cot in there where he was sleeping. Well, every time this man came to, to fix one of our machines, it was another episode of As the World Turned. And, you know, some days the clothes were gone, and he was living happily ever after, and some then he'd come back, and he'd have that little cigarette and the ducktail and the tie and the jacket. And I have to tell you that on his chest was this great big S. And I wish I could tell you it stood for Superman, but it didn't. It stood for security. He had a car, he had a job, he had been in the service and he was out, and he was working and had you know financial security and he was cocky and arrogant and i didn't know he was an alcoholic (laughs) i I had no idea that that's what i was attracted to and and but i saw this big s of security on him and and i was sitting there and and i would think to myself oh that poor guy the poor guy well i lost my job ended up going across the street where he had an office in the back room of a little tooling supply company and they gave me a job as a little receptionist over there and I got to watch this big blue and white Oldsmobile um, drive in the driveway, and as the top's down, it's middle of summer, and he's brushing back that crew cut and fixing that stuff. And just as he would walk in the door, he'd light a cigarette, and he'd be sticking out of his cocky little arrogant mouth. And he'd take that jacket, and he'd sling it over the chair. And I mean, it was like some romance novel. As the, You know, it was just... And he'd sling it over the chair, and he'd unbutton one button and loosen that tie. And you know how... Oh, I just sit there, I was just mesmerized by this man. And he would go into the back room and they had a refrigerator back there. And I have to tell you all this because I'm not going to tell you a whole lot of what happened afterwards because this was what set me up. I mean, I saw all this and it was what I didn't realize is it it looked secure and it also was familiar to me. And in the back room was was a little refrigerator and it was full of Coors beer and it had some gin and vodka in the freezer and they assured me as a child that it did not freeze. And the only thing that they were doing was keeping that stuff cold. Now, there wasn't a lunch in there except mine, and a few little packages of ketchup and mustard were in there, and, you know, I'd put my little lunch in there, and there's nothing in there but beer. But this guy would saunter into the back room with that shirt open and the tie loosened up, and he'd get a can of beer, and he'd stand right in the doorway where I could see him, and he'd pop that top off the can, and he'd take a long drink, and every time that man took a drink of beer, I felt better. <laughs> and i i had some notion that if he would just get rid of her and pay attention to me now i don't know where this thought ever came from think about it alan in this room but the very first thing we think about when we marry an alcoholic is our absolute knowledge that we can make him happy Do you, where does that come from <laughs> i had never known happiness in my entire life and uh and yet I looked at that man, and I had some absolute, assured inner knowledge that if he was mine, I could make him happy. And I ended up going back to work for Marquardt in a few weeks, months, days. I have no idea how much longer after that. He came back, and he had been officially separated from this lady, and he asked me for a date. And I, and I thought that I was the luckiest woman that ever, ever walked planet Earth. Now I'm here to tell you that in another month and a half, I'm going to be married to that fox for 39 years, and I do think that I am the luckiest woman. That's walked planet Earth, but it has been a long road from there to there. <laughs> I do not want you to think <laughs> that I was in some—it I mean, has been a long, long road to recovery. But thank God for recovery, because without this, you know, we wouldn't have what we have today, and we've, we've survived stuff that couples should not have to survive and um anyhow he asked me out on a date and i took him home to meet my father and they went in the kitchen and fixed a little drink but what i didn't know is that they drank most of a half of a bottle behind the wall before they come out with this cute little cocktail for the girls and and i'd always look at it when i looked at him the very first night that he and my dad went behind that kitchen wall and i noticed something happened to all of his facial muscles and i thought to myself what happened to him back there he had just turned stupid-looking, you know, just dumb. And I have a photograph of my husband in that condition on my bookcase today. I'm an amateur photographer, and it's my hobby. But back then, I didn't realize that I was gifted in that area, and I just took a little snapshot of my husband and my father with that stupid look on their face. <laughs> they were barbecuing, and, and they, I keep it there as a reminder that this is what I reacted to. I reacted to the way that my husband looked. It was not really the way he acted. I mean, that came later. But in the beginning, I reacted to those sagging facial muscles, and I knew that there was something wrong. And um, we dated for a year and a week, and got married. And one of the things that happened, I went to see the mom senior. When I was a little cho- when I was a little girl, four years old, my mom woke me up one Sunday morning and said, "I'm going to get you up. You're going to Catholic church, and your Auntie Annie's going to raise you as a Catholic." And I was raised in one of those beautiful, beautiful cathedral-looking Catholic churches right in center Chicago. All the marble and the gold and all the ornate fixtures and the beautiful wooden benches. It was absolutely gorgeous in there. When I moved to the suburbs, I got myself up. And I made my you know I continued on with this thing and I went to other churches to go to to youth centers and everything and I knew Bible verses and I and I really felt like there was something in this but I didn't know what this thing about God was but I was so attracted to a spiritual what I thought was a spiritual way of life it was a religious way of life but it was about the knowledge of God and I was very very attracted to that And when my husband and I decided to get married he comes from a very very Mormon family And he made a big sacrifice and said, if I wanted him to, we could get married behind the altar of the Catholic Church. But the Monsignor denied that uh, privilege because he had been married before. And I walked out of there with a big chip on my shoulder, and I threw away the Catholic Church. But what I also didn't realize is on that day, I threw away the God of my understanding. And from that day until I was introduced to the God... That, that Al-Anon provided for me, the, the opportunity to find a God that I could believe in, a God that I could create, a God that I could trust. Um, I was on self-will run riot. Um, we went on a little two-day honeymoon. The next Monday we came home, both of us went to work, I still didn't have the rice out of my hair. I fixed my favorite, the best thing I knew how to fix was a tuna casserole and at five o'clock I just figured my my groom would show up You know to, to start living happily ever after. And at 5 o'clock, the groom did not show up. And the groom didn't show up for the next 22 years, and I want you to know I got a little edgy. LAUGHTER And I started something with the groom that I was to do for the next 22 years, and that was this phone these, this phone rage, you know, to call him up and say, dinner's ready. And he'd say, no, dinner's ready. When are you coming home? I'll be there when I get there. You know, what time is that going to be? I don't know. And then we learned how to slam the phone down on each other and, and how to just, you know, discount each other in, in ways that are subtle. But, but take away and erode everything that might even be left. I mean, you just start to a pattern of life with alcoholism that takes away your dignity, your peace of mind, your security, your financial security. All of the love, all of the trust, it just one day at a time, one minute at a time, it just begins to disappear. And you begin reacting to the disease of alcoholism in ways that you made promises, and I did, that I would never, ever, ever, ever want to treat another human being in ways that I would never want to treat me. I i would watch my mother and father carry on about his drinking, and I made promises that I never, ever, ever wanted to act like that ever in my entire life, that if I had children, I was going to love them better. If I had a husband, I was going to love them better, and we weren't going we to gonna fight like this. We weren't going to do those things. But one day at a time, our marriage eroded, and we didn't even know what was going on. I had a second child two years later, and i was i was didn't become a perfectionist it was something that started in my childhood trying to get my mother's approval for just one single thing that i would do and it carried on into my married life if i could just clean the house better if i could look better if my hair was a different color and i want you to know i tried some real unusual colors i was orange for a long period of time because um they said blondes had more fun but my hair never turned blonde because i had naturally had dark brown hair and it was always kind of the color of Pat's shirt, you know, and I thought I was, I was just, uh, just gorgeous, and, and so, I mean, I did a lot of things trying to make myself, to change myself on the outside, to see if I could change the way I was feeling on the inside, and I made some really big mistakes, and I, and I looked so obnoxious most of the time, and I, and I looked the way I felt. And i just thought if i could if i could put together a wardrobe that looked like yours and i could put it on me i'd begin to feel the way i thought you you looked you know and and it was just a bizarre way of living and yeah. one day in this sense, in this height of the perfectionism where i'm trying to keep everything up so that i could get his attention and maybe he would come home um i was very very irritable and very very angry that day and my older son who was still in diapers came out of the bedroom and he pushed a tonka truck across the newly vacuumed rug, and i went into a fit of rage that um is unbelievable and i have that capacity it's a white hot fuse that just blows up inside of me and i can't predict it and and i you know and this happened that day and i grabbed up a diapered baby and a wooden spoon and i began to beat that child i mean i began to beat him within an inch of his life and I know today that the voice of God spoke to me, and I listened to it that day, and, I, and it said, if you hit him again, you will kill him. Because I think that I was on this fine line, you know, between life and death, and if I would have struck that child one more time, I would have lost control completely, and I know that I would have killed that child. And I put that, uh, the baby down, and I saw myself, and I thought, what have you become? you know, what has happened to you? You are absolutely crazy. And I was appalled at my behavior. And life went on like that. I made a promise that I would never, ever touch those children again. And I, to my knowledge, I didn't ever, I didn't ever do it again. But what I did was a new way of, of, of beating on my children, and that was to ne- for them never to be enough. They weren't dressed the right way, they didn't get the right grades, they didn't swim fast enough. Both my boys became athletes and I spent a lot of time, you know, watching wrestling matches and they were really good. They were very good athletes, but they were never good enough for me. And I would be angry because he wasn't showing up. You know, he'd show up ten minutes before a match was over and, and I just always felt like I was alone. But on the other hand, what uh, what that kind of an environment did for me is it made me strong, and I didn't even realize it. You know, it it gave me courage. To, at times, I didn't know I had courage. It gave me. Faith that I could do something, even when I wasn't sure I could do it. I learned how to wallpaper. I learned how to paint. I learned how to mow lawns. I could do anything. I mean, you—I have my own little toolkit today, and there's not too much that I can't do. Uh, however, I'd much rather give it to him to do today. <laughs> it's just a lot easier that way. But I had to learn. You know, you—you—it's what I was raised in an era that you—you you lie in the bed. You know, if you, you you made your bed and you lie in it. So I had to become creative and and learn how to take care of myself because I couldn't count that he would ever be there. When uh, in 1978 things changed for us, it was the beginning of the end, it was the it was a time when, when the miracle was beginning to happen and I didn't even realize it, but he was given an opportunity to move to Texas and take on a new job. And all that I could see was great big financial security, the S was back, you know, we were going to move to Texas, it was all going to be better, the kids were going to get to go to different school and we're going to have more money, we'll have a bigger house. And again, we packed up alcoholism in that truck, and we drove it across the United States and set up a household in in Texas, and we brought alcoholism with us, and alcoholism is a progressive disease. And um, what I didn't realize at that time, because I was in total denial, is that I brought two just full-blown drug addict, alcoholic children with us, and they were 11 and 13 years old. They had already started to experience drugs and alcohol on the beach in Sparta, New Jersey, and they hid it from me very well, and at that, I didn't want to see it. I wanted to see my children as heroes, you know, people who could wrestle and, and swim backstroke and win medals and do all those things. And so the evidence of alcoholism was in my family, but I opted not to see it. On the other hand, I didn't know what sobriety looked like. So this was all common, ordinary, just regular behavior for me. Um, we ended up getting Stevie a pickup truck when he turned 16 years old and he'd come home from work or, or go, come home from an evening and it'd be full of beer cans and I'd ask him how where did all those cans come from and he'd say well mom he says we went to the drive-in last night and we were long ways from the dumpster and I just said y'all just throw your cans in my truck and I thought god that's my boy you know <laughs> Always doing for others and and I and things started to disappear from my house and they weren't just one or two things, they were countless things, you know, and I would ask that same stupid question over and over again, where did it go? And then they had a little routine. Scott would look at me and he was just adorable and he'd say mom I don't think we had anything that ever looked like that and he'd then he'd say to Steve do you remember anything that looked like that and Steve would go no mom I think there's something wrong with you and I you know you, they do this over and over and over until I got to believing that there was something wrong with me And I got to a place where I couldn't tell the truth. I was lying about everything that was going on in my life. I was late to work. Um, You know, I didn't know if I was coming or going. I didn't know if the dog was in or out. I just didn't know what was going on. And finally, one day in early January of 81, a lady came to work and her son had almost died from an overdose and she'd been gone three days. And we went to have lunch together and she told me what was going on. And it was the first time that I had a conscious thought that bad stuff is happening in my house and she told me about this place in denton and she said that her son was up there for twenty eight days of treatment from drug addiction and alcoholism and i got home with armed with this new information and presented it to my husband and i said you know i really think we need to take scott up there and have him evaluated because you know he and stacy are doing some really crazy things and you know maybe if we could get him up there and get him straightened around and get rid of stacy our life is going to be better it was always something outside of what was happening inside of me that was going to make my life better. So on the, around the 20th of January of 1981, we took the entire little family up to Westgate to be evaluated. And we sat there individually, and they asked us a series of questions. And then they sat this there as a little family, asked us a series of questions. And I thought we had done a fine job of answering the questions. There were a few times I kicked a few people under the table when I thought their answer was wrong, and and they would shape up. And anyhow, at the end of this. The counselors stood up and jean coffin was one of the counselors that evaluated our alcoholism and she turned out to be one of my heroes and and she died several years ago but she left me the legacy of journaling and and it has been a part of my life um almost for 18 years now and anyhow i just loved what i saw in her she had a bunch of bracelets that went from her wrist down to her elbow and she had on polyester tight pants and and she had this huge bag and she was always in it. Have you ever brought a grocery bag home from the grocery store and the cat goes in the bag and you know the cat's kind of roaming around in the grocery bag and then it comes out? It was like Jean was always roaming around in this big, huge purse. And I was so... I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. I was just so taken with her. And she was gruff and crusty, a lot like her friend Evelyn. (laughs) 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 And, And they... They knew how to have fun. I watched them as years went on and they knew how to have fun and I took lessons from them. But what I didn't realize is it wasn't the bracelets and it wasn't the big person it wasn't the jeans and the way she walked and the way she talked there was something about her very essence that i was attracted to and i didn't know it then and right from the very first moment that i saw jean what i know today is that i wanted what she had and i was willing to do whatever she said i was willing to do anything jean told me to do however i was not prepared for what she said next she they looked at us and they kind of whispered between them and then she took the spokesman's position and she said we are convinced that this family suffers from alcoholism. But she says, we're going to send you all home because we don't know who has it. So when the real alcoholic... (laughs) (laughs) She she says, when the real alcoholic surfaces, bring him or her back. (laughs) And I was
1: really upset over that. I'm thinking,
0: what is she talking about you know me (laughs) i'm the only female in this gang so we go home and continue to practice the disease of alcoholism and it was only until the 9th of february that something well actually on the 7th which uh, something was really stolen that i knew i owned and i can i confronted scott before he went to school and I said I know I had it and you have to bring it back and we went through this bantering about how it was melted and sold and, and I'm screaming and I literally got out of the house ran down the driveway shaking my fist at him and calling him all kinds of names and demanding that he brought back the thing that I knew he had stolen and he, had, he said I took it mom there's nothing I can do I think it was the first time he was ever honest he got on the bus he went to school I called in sick It was a gloomy, cold Monday morning on the ninth day of February of 1981, and it was the first time I think I told the truth. I called in sick because I really, really was sick that day. What I didn't know is that along with being very sick, I was very dead that day. And a few minutes after I got off the phone, Scott called me back, and he says, if you'll come and get me at school and take me, I'll I'll go there. And see, he he had a motive. He was in deep doo-doo. I didn't know it then. I mean deep. He had been robbing houses in my neighborhood the day that he robbed me, and he and his buddy had been doing it together, and the, and the authorities were hot on his heels, and what he thought was, if I can get out of this mess and go into this place for 28 days, you know, maybe it will all cool off, and that was his motive for going into treatment. So what I'm thinking to myself today is it doesn't matter how we get here or what our motives are. If we are given the grace to show up here and if we take hold of the 12 steps and start to do what we're supposed to do, we are going to be able to change our lives. And the thing that brought an entire family into recovery was a kid whose motives were not good. He wanted he wanted to get out of Dodge. Well, I went into the principal's office, and I said, I'm taking my son out of here for 28 days because he's got some problems with alcohol and drugs. And the principal looked me right in the eye, and he said, good. We do not need the influence of that kind of child in our school system. And I felt like a leper. I felt like I had, I mean, I was so disgraced that day. I didn't know, and he didn't know, that I was I was going to step into a lifetime journey that was beyond anything that I could ever comprehend. What he was looking at is if he got rid of my son, his entire school district was going to get better. So isn't that a sick thought?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so we put him in there and signed all the papers. Stevie drove me because I couldn't drive that day, and... Dee drove me in and I says, Well, you might as well come in, and he says, Oh no, not me. I'll just wait out here. And I says, Well, it's cold out here and it's raining. He said, No, Mom, you go ahead and go on in there. I'm just gonna stay out here and I'll wait for you. And it was a gloomy day. I felt as bad as the day looked. And I went in there and signed all the papers, and the lady who was only this tall on me, she was one of the speakers here one year. Her name was Trish, and she said to me, And you will have to go to Al Anon. And I says, Well, I don't think you understand. I work and she said so does everybody else and she said you will go to al-anon or you can't come back here and see your child well i didn't know it then but i couldn't stand my children i really could not stand i want to tell you i hated my I hated the fact that they were stealing things from me i didn't like the way they treated me and i don't know when it starts when does it start where that erosion of love begins but the very children that I gave birth to and I was so delighted when I could see they had ten beautiful little fingers and ten little toes and I was so happy to be a mother I don't know what from that place until the day I put Scott into treatment where the love went but at the day that day I did not love him and yet she said to me if I didn't go to Al-Anon, I couldn't come back, and my idea was, who do you think... I mean, I'm a people pleaser. I didn't do this. This is what I'm thinking. I have big thoughts of mean things to do to you, but I don't say anything out loud. I'm thinking, who do you think you are to tell me I can't come back here and see my child? So... I started to go to al Anon because I'm a people pleaser, <laughs> and that was my motive. That was my only motive, and I started, I went to the old Main Street group in Louisville on Monday because that's where they took the patients from the treatment center, and I went to the Alpha group on Thursday because that's where they took the patients, and thank God that this treatment center was based around the big book and having a sponsor before you got out and good recovery and And I didn't know that I was in the middle of the miracle. I didn't know. The people who were my mentors and the people who were my peers back then were the most active members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that have ever walked planet earth and so many of them are dying you know and they say that we are left to carry this on and I feel that the burden is too big you know things are changing but I want it to be like it was when I walked in here they were full of love and enthusiasm and encouragement and no matter how crazy you were and I'm here to tell you I was a lunatic when I walked in here they loved me unconditional and it was because they loved me unconditionally that I began to be willing to be open to the possibility of beginning to unconditionally love my children and the beginning thing that they said to me was that i could love the child and hate the disease that it didn't have to be all lumped up in a big ball i could love my husband and hate his disease because i didn't understand back then that when my husband took a drink then the drink took the drink and then the drink took a man and it didn't have anything to do with me it's not that he didn't think i was the most beautiful woman in the world It's not that he didn't honor me or treasure our relationship it's just that when he took a drink of alcohol he could not honor the marriage he had to honor the drink and in the last couple of weeks i have heard some incredible stories about how that drink has been honored by the alcohol by the alcoholic a man who took a little hungry child in for a, a, a sandwich and he also needed a pint of liquor and when, they, when he reached in his pocket, he found he didn't have enough money for both, and he bought the drink. You know, it was those kinds of things that I, that I continue to understand the devastation of this disease, and it doesn't have anything to do with me. My job in the, in the program of Al-Anon is to have a happy life in spite of this illness. And, you know, I didn't know what happy was. I didn't know that I could be happy. I didn't know who I was when I walked in here. I was the bedmaker, the cook, the bottle washer, the lawn mower, the guy who kept everything together. I was the organizer and the unorganizer. You know, that was my role in life. And um, anyhow i started to go to meetings and i was sat down in the middle of the miracle and and i started to do some of the things just as you know it they were they were kind of happy haphaz- it my, my best recovery and don explained it is haphazard but my commitment to haphazard is, is a determination to do it to the very best of my ability every single day even though it is haphazard and there's there's a prayer that i love in it and it says Dear God, I may not know where I'm going. I may not see the seashore ahead of me. But, you know, if I think that I am following your will, you know, chances are I'm I'm giving it my best shot. And I kind of live my life like that today. I believe today that I'm a child of God and that if I'm given recovery my best shot, God is proud of me. And, And that is an incredible thing for me to believe, is that God is proud of my best effort in this program. And so we started to go to all these meetings and and on the 23rd of February we're coming home actually it's the 22nd we're coming home from a meeting and my husband said that he saw himself in the big book as the jaywalker and I said to him and so he said well tomorrow night at the meeting I'm going to get a desire chip and my mind said oh my god Beverly this is just you can't this can't happen you have the youngest child in treatment and now your husband and they're thinking you're a crappy mother and now your husband's going to get up there and get a desire chip and what are they going to think of you as a wife I mean it was all about me and so I gave him my lecture, I have a, I had a huge soapbox back then and I used it well and I lectured him all the way into Denton about how he shouldn't get that chip and please don't, and don't embarrass me and they stood there and you know, those alcoholics are so proud of those little aluminum chips they kind of say is there anybody in the room tonight that desires one 24-hour period of sobriety? Would you please come up and get a chip? And my husband jumped out of that chair and latched onto that desire chip, and I sunk into my chair, and I thought, I'm going to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) And and he has that desire chip in his pocket today, and he has 19 years of continuous sobriety, but I'm here to tell you... (laughs)
1: I'm here to tell you
0: I was not proud of that in the beginning. I did not know about the miracle of recovery. I was embarrassed because he stood up there and embarrassed me in front of all my friends. And uh, we got home and we started this life together and, and we started to go to a lot of meetings. And I don't know how that happened. I, I don't know how it happened. But before Scott got out of, out of uh, treatment on the 8th of March, I was going to at least 10 meetings of Al-Anon a week and i was going into dallas because i didn't understand what it meant when they said stick to the with the winners but somehow or other i knew that those people going to that alpha group had some qualities of life that i wanted and most of them you know i look back today they had seven eight ten twelve years twenty years of of program back then and i wanted what they had but i didn't consciously know what the attraction was for me it was to be able to eat ice cream with these people to feel a part of something i had felt so remote and so left out and so lonely for so long that when these people that i perceived as giants said come across the street and have some ice cream with us i would have sat on the floor just to be in their presence i mean that's that's what i wanted was just to be there And we started to go to family afterward meetings and we'd fight all the way there and we'd fight all the way back. And then we'd got a little recovery under our belt and we'd only fight one way. And then, but the interesting thing about that is we'd walk in the doors and they'd say, How are y'all tonight? And we'd go, Fine, fine, everything's fine. You know, we'd have this horrible week, you know, where we just did everything we could to each other to just humiliate and degrade each other, and we'd walk in there and go, fine, we're just fine. (laughs) And then we started only fighting one way, and we'd walk in and be fine, and then we'd hear about something about communication and courtesy, and these words that were just void from our relationship and and i chaired my first meeting in al-anon and i thought it was a big deal but the fact is is it was a small group and they just wanted somebody new to chair and so they asked me to chair and i was just sweating you know a lot like I am right now <laughs> about this and i bring out my dilemma of the alcoholic marriage and i pick out this page on courtesy And I thought, my God, I need to be working some sort of a program towards courtesy before I can lead a meeting. And I thought, what can I do to be courteous? And I thought, all of a sudden it occurred to me that I'd been drying my hair in his bath towel and that he always had to dry in this wet towel. And I thought, I'll just quit doing that. And that's courtesy. So I went to the meeting and I was all pumped up because I had experience, strength, and hope to share. So I quit using his towel and now, you know, I, I, it's just something I don't do anymore, but it was the beginning. The beginnings were so silly for us. They were, I mean, they, they, today they seem so foolish, what we did. But then we started to got to a point where we could go to family afterward and not fight either way and and we could sit there and share some experience with the rest of the people and and on march 30th i mean i'm talking in advance and i'm going to go back now to march 30th it's a morning sunday morning we're going off to alpha and my son steve came in noticeably drunk and i i stood in the middle of my kitchen and i saw alcoholism in my home and i says oh my god steve you're drunk and scott says god mom he's worse than me well how you know i think how's that possible And another thing that I began to learn from you is trust. I had never trusted anything or anybody in my entire life, but I began to trust you. We went off to that meeting that day. And I asked Bill, what should I do? And Bill said, well, you can either ask him to join you in recovery or you can ask him to leave. Well, that was a concept beyond me because, I mean, this is my child. I grew him in my belly, and he's telling me I can ask him to leave, and then I'm afraid of angry people besides, so I think I can't do that. And he says, it's the only two choices you have. And, and he had a lot of experience behind that knowledge, and I thought, I have to believe that Bill is telling me the truth. And so we went home that day, and we asked Stephen if he could, if he wanted to, he could join us in recovery, or else he would have to move out of the house, because we could not have alcoholism and drug addiction in a home that was newly sober. And Stephen ran out of the house at 80 miles an hour in reverse in the truck, and a few minutes later called me from the store. And, said he'd go to one AA meeting. And I got back up on my soapbox and started about, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and now Anonymous forever and you just don't go to one meeting and blah, 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 blah. And anyhow, I could hear myself and I thought, oh, just shut up. And and so he said he would go to one meeting and so we go to one meeting and my husband jumped out of the car that night because he was embarrassed to walk into Alcoholics Anonymous with his son dressed the way that he was. And Stevie had curly hair permed and and a and a, a Coors hat, and a tequila T-shirt, titty shoes, holy jeans. He had an earring, and his face was full of pimples because the average meal of an of an alcoholic drug addict that's 17 years old is is Fritos and 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 corn chips and picante sauce and chocolate bars and and you know the complexion just goes to hell and and so does the room and the clothes and the attitude and and I got holes in my wall and all this stuff and anyhow my husband gum- jumped out of the car and he ran home and I wanted to jump out and run after him because my thought is you know I could save him from a drink and um, Scott says mom just drive the car and so we walked in and Millie H was sitting on the sofa and she said who's that and I said this is Steve and she said he's half dead And when we're involved in active alcoholism, we cannot see the disease of alcoholism. And my son was half dead. And Bob P. took him in a back room afterwards, and he started to talk to him. And Bobby became the family sponsor. And Bobby told me that eventually, well, I need to tell you about Stevie's first day of sobriety, because it changed my life. The very morning that Stephen got home from work that day, the phone rang at 6.30, and it's Bobby. And he asked Stephen if he was sober, if he had made it through the night of night stock and sober, and Stevie said, yeah, he was sober, and and so apparently Bobby instructed him to get on his knees and thank the God of his understanding for that day of sobriety, and my bedroom wall and Steve's bedroom wall are the same wall, and through that wall I heard my son pray, and I want you to know that it was the most incredible thing that has ever happened to me, to hear a 17-year-old boy get on his knees and say, dear God, thank you for this day of sobriety." And I got to see twelve step uh, 12 step call in action. I am so blessed to have been able to experience that, to be able to watch Bobby do what Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book taught him to do and to teach my son one day at a time how to live life sober. Now I'm telling you that for a couple of years I screamed and ranted and raved that they should not get in line and buy concert tickets. Bobby was Stephen's sober or sponsor for one week and all the concert tickets were gone. They were sold, gone. Bobby said that a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous cannot go to where they're they're drinking and drugging, and he got Stephen to sell those tickets. Now, I thought to myself, Bobby was a power greater than myself. (laughs) A couple of days after Stevie got sober, he decided he didn't want to drive around in that old drunk truck, and he sold it to another alcoholic, and, and he got a little red Tonka truck, and he rode that little Tonka truck until as a result of an inventory he got to go to Texas A&M University and five semesters later my husband and I had the privilege of watching this kid in a cap and gown walk across the stage of Texas A&M and, and you know and it's a, already been expressed how do you get from there to there how does a family get from a kid in the back seat, in in the clothing that he was wearing half dead to a boy who is fully alive and following the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and in love with people like Bob White who who sometimes Stevie would get so crazy Bob would just ask him to come down and help him pick out underwear and Stephen had spent three <laughs> days down there with Bob White and they were shopping for underwear and cleaning the lenses of his cameras and they'd wash their hair in the lake and I think what does all this have to do with anything? And Stevie would just call me up and he says, I'm going to stay another day because Bob said stay for dinner. And Marceline's an ice cream. And it was these kinds of things. And this young boy was attracted to that. And I wish I could tell you that my son's example helped me to become more than I was because it took me nine years to be able to pray on my knees, to be able to feel that I was not so good that I could get down and pray on my knees and it was through the example of seeing a sponsor do it and I knew she was telling the truth she was really doing it and life went on for us and Scott's sobriety was very fragile and he lost his sobriety and he was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous Stephen seemed to be anchored in the program and an alcoholic gave me my first copy of the big book and told me that I should take heed of what was written in these pages because he believed that I thought that I could somehow or other Control and Cure Alcoholism. And I became a student of the big book, and I know that it's not conference-approved literature, and I never take it into a meeting of Al-Anon, but I'm here to tell you that I know what's written on those pages, and it's, it's a part of my own re- personal recovery. And I took that book, and I thought, who does he think he is to tell me that my kid's not going to stay sober? But you know what? He knew he wasn't going to stay sober. And I set out on a journey that I wished I never had to face. He was in and out, in and out. He left. He lived in, in slummy places with people with guns, and and appalling situations and and what that did was it strengthened me in my own recovery. I had to understand that he was God's child and that there was nothing that I could do and that I had the right to be happy whether the alcoholic was suffering or not. And I want you to know that that's an incredible concept. How in the world am I entitled to have a happy life when I'm watching my child? die in a street of alcoholism but on the other hand god gave me the gift of being able to watch stevie grow into a human being that was beyond anything that i could ever imagine and i thought you know this is the very essence of the disease of alcoholism it's it's there and it's real and and I just sunk my teeth in this program and I marched on and I went to all these conferences and somebody told us to send money in here and you know I was so financially insecure I'm thinking how in the world are we going to get all that money together to send it off to sleep in a bunk bed with all these crazy people and we did it and I want you to know that we've been sleeping around and sleeping in bunk beds and and going to a lot of conventions and there were times when I thought to myself you know I would really like to be able to go to a lot of conventions it seems like there's a quality of, of happiness here and a quality that you just sometimes don't get in a meeting and I wanted to be around what I saw at conventions and I thought but we don't make enough money to go to as many conventions as I'd like to go to so long you know all of a sudden these two guys Stevie and George start us a little business and I go to a lot of conventions (laughs) and I love it somebody says to me you know um, do you ever get tired of it? And I don't ever get tired of it. I love what I feel here because, see, what I was told is that the people who are really after it are paying the money to go to conventions and, and, it, and it's, they, they want the one little bit more. And so I'm always in the middle of it and it's such a gift for me because I, I, I could become very complacent. I'm the kind of person who starts a class in knitting, and I'll go two or three times and figure I've got enough and I'll quit, you know, and and it could have happened with me in the program of Al-Anon. I could have gone, you know, for four or five years and thought, you know, I've got enough and I'll just quit. But by being involved with you and seeing what happens and how the lives of other people have changed, you have always been my example. I mean, has always been my example, and I just keep running after what you've got. I don't know what that is, you know, but I keep chasing it, and I'm glad that I do. I still go to a lot of meetings today. I you know I have I have a job in my home group, and, and, you know, I sponsor girls, and they sponsor me, and I have a sponsor I call every day, and I love her more than, than life itself. And, you know, I have so many things to be grateful for. But I want to tell you that it has not always been easy here. What I know today is that I had some idea because we stepped in and God hopped on the pink cloud. I mean, we floated around on the pink cloud of sobriety and, and my Al-Anon program and all these gifts for a long period of time. And one day, it was like somebody just put a balloon, kind of like Joe did. <laughs> Don't embarrass me. <laughs> you know? It's like one day I walked in and somebody just stuck a pin in my balloon and it just crumbled. And, and you know, Scott was out there drinking and. And I just didn't, I wasn't, I didn't expect that anybody who walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon ever left. I mean, you'd have to be crazy to to leave here. So I just figured once we were here, our membership was paid in full and we got to stay forever. But what I realized is that you have to take action on the grace. At we've been given here, you know, a day at a time, and I can't become complacent. I can't just because I'm going to travel early one day doesn't mean I can't set my alarm clock and do my prayer and meditation because I have to. I have to do those things because if I'm the kind of person who if I quit for one day, I'll never go back to it again. And so I am committed to my recovery, and um, and I want more. I'm selfish. I am still selfish. I think I'm God's favorite child, and I want more, and more, and more of what you have, and and so. Anyhow, Scott was out there, and he got a girlfriend that he met in high school, and they ended up living together for a while, and in, uh, in October of 1985, they got married, and because you taught me how not to enable alcoholism, Scott had to learn how to be self-supporting through his own contributions, and as, as drunk and stoned as he was, that kid always had a job. And that second job well he did steal a little wine and eventually got canned from one job but he went the next day got a better job you know how you guys are and um you're not going (laughs) to let a little headache hold you back you know you're just going to become better and he did and he got this job and they sent him to orlando florida to uh open a a restaurant there and and um they were married for two years and they called home and said that they were going to have a baby and my first thought was not that of joy but of oh my god how could they ever 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 think of bringing a child into this horrible horrible alcoholism and um, anyhow on may 12th of 1988 my grandchild sarah was born and six months after her birth My son was put into intensive care for 10 days because he became very sick with a respiratory illness that they couldn't uh, diagnose and I I was not entitled to any information. Um, My daughter-in-law was, it was payback time, she did not like to be detached from with love and um, so her way was to just, you know, do any little things she could do to, you know, get even with me. That was her motive and her way that she operated because she was involved with alcoholism and she was not in recovery. And, and so on the 10th day when my son came home, he called me on the phone. I had just taken my father in less than a month before. He was dying. He was in later stages of, of uh, cancer. And my sister and I had made the decision that together we could take care of our father as long as... He needed care, and we were having a good time doing that, even though it was very serious. You have taught us how to do things with joy and, and create an, a, a way of dignity for people who are suffering, and and we just would get my dad chemotherapy, then take him to an AA meeting, <laughs> and he just loved you people, and one day I knew that he was alcoholic when we're looking at a book, and, and, he, and he says, I says, oh, there was this wonderful glass just tinkling with the sweat and the little umbrella, and I says, oh my God, Daddy, doesn't that look wonderful? And he goes, you know, it's the funniest thing, since I've been on marijuana, on morphine, I really haven't wanted to drink much. <laughs> 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 it was my clue, and so we've got my father there, you know, with, with, a, not, with a prognosis of, you know, not not very good, and, and my son calls me up, and he was 24 years old, and he says, Mom, I'm in full-blown AIDS, and I'm going to die, and they told me that I have until I'm 25 if I'm lucky and uh, my father died in february of 1990 and in july of 1990 my son came back from florida uh, to come to live in texas because see when you taught me how to love the child and hate the disease my my son began to believe in the love and so did i and he wanted to be home with us because he knew that our love for him was pure and it was honest and he knew alcoholics anonymous and Al-Anon worked but he he was not ready to stop drinking and so he came home with his little family and this little two-year-old and I got the great privilege of watching my grandchild while my my husband took my son off to uh, Parkland Hospital for treatments on a fairly regular basis. And and um, it was an incredible thing to watch my son get through this illness because I saw courage behind, behind that illness like I have never, ever, ever witnessed before. But much of me, sometimes I would look at him and I want to tell you I'd get really angry because I didn't want my son to die. I mean, I thought to myself, how could this have happened, you know? But all that I know is that things happen. You know, these things just happen. And what God did is he filled my love, my life with people who loved me. And there wasn't a day that went by that somebody didn't leave messages on my answering machine and you didn't even know he was dying of AIDS because in 1988 we were set, we were told, do not tell. So we walked, some people suspicioned by his symptoms, what was going on, and others didn't have a clue. And I walked in that in a lonely isolation, but for whatever reason, I still ended up with a lot of support. And in January um, of 1993, he had to have surgery. He had got, developed one of the uh, diseases in his brain, and they thought if they could relieve that, he could live a little bit longer. And all that it did was encourage further growth of this fungus, and and um, he died a few weeks later and i thought at the time that when he died that my daughter-in-law and my grandchild would just leave us and i would never see them again and as he died the moment he drew his last breath my daughter-in-law reached over and she grabbed my arm and she said nanny sarah and i have to become a part of your life even though scott's not here and i says what do you want me to do i says, i'll do anything and she says let's set up a day that we have dinner together and so on tuesday Every Tuesday from that day until this Tuesday we have dinner together and I think to myself I thought to myself we never get to have Sunday dinner we're always out on the road and blah, 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 blah. and I realized that I fix Sunday dinner on Tuesday because it's not just a hot dog and a bun and a can of beans I go through the whole thing and put out a tablecloth and napkins and candles and flowers and every Tuesday we have a wonderful meal together and Sarah gets us caught up on her life and I looked at that in this very child that I thought how could God bring a child into active alcoholism has turned out to be the greatest blessing in my life. Um, We started taking her to the Crested Butte Mountain Conference nine years ago just so that the kids could have some time together. And what she did was develop a love and trust for Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. That's beyond anything I could ever imagine. And she goes to Alateen up there, or Preteen up there in the mountains, and she sits in on the speaker meetings. And she's been three years to singles in Sobriety, and she loves the alcoholics. And so one of my (laughs) pleas for please, please, please keep this... Al-Anon just is pure and is simple. Please don't throw away any more of our old literature. Please don't change anything. Please don't talk about things in Al-Anon that don't belong in Al-Anon because I'm pleading with you selfishly. My grandchild is going to need you, and I want her to find there what I found there, your love and your enthusiasm and your encouragement. But see, what Sarah also knows is that the first year, they wouldn't let her play volleyball, and she said to them, finally, after being thrown away, they have made her the golfer." Can you imagine you guys making that little kid a golfer? Anyhow, she finally had had a hat full of that, and she walked up, and she says, My name is Sarah Ann Burnett. I am single, and I'm 10 years sober, and I am qualified to play volleyball. And they thought I put her up to that, and I said, I am not that bright. Last year she drew a big heart on a piece of concrete with some sidewalk chalk and inside that heart she said AA goes to the soul and kills the demons within and she was 11 years old. She knows where to go. She's got a 50-50 chance of ever becoming an alcoholic but she also has a 50-50 chance of needing the program of al and all that I know is that you have given me a way of life where I started out to talk the talk, then I talk the walk, then I walk the talk, and then I walk the walk. And i don't ever have to stand in front of my family and say i'm a wonderful member of al-anon watch me go i walk the walk and it's the amends that i've made to my family is to become an active member of al-anon and for my life to change and to become loving and kind and my other little granddaughter that belongs to my son steve i'm going to tell you this and then i'm going to sit down when they were trying to teach her how to say grandmother she absolutely refused to say grandmother and finally one day she looked at me and she said this is my happy and my little Hallie calls me happy, and then when Hannah came along, they, she calls me happy, and Heidi calls me happy, and Steve hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, <laughs> but there's always hope. But what I, what I look at it, I think that is God's way to bless me with these little girls who call me happy, because that's what we are when we're all together. I'm not a woman, an ogre with a big wooden spoon, because it was her dad I almost killed with that spoon that day. I am a woman who brings joy to her life, and it's only because... I have followed your example, and I am so glad you're here. I am so glad I'm here, and we all need to just keep coming back, and thank you, thank you for letting me share.